Chag Sameach, everyone, and good Yom Tiv. If your Seder night was anything like mine, and let's be honest, these past two years, all of our Seder tables have been far more alike than we'd like to think, then you probably made the same discovery that I made, which is that apparently it doesn't matter how many people are or aren't at our Seder table because the same question gets thrown my way no matter what. And the question is, why do we tell the same story over and over again? Which for the record is of the same variety that I usually get when we talk about the prayers in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Why do we keep saying the same prayers year after year? Why is it that we can't tell a different story? Surely there's no shortage of stories in Jewish history, and why is it that we can't say different prayers? On the other hand, the funny thing is I never hear people complaining why it is we eat latkes and sufkaniyot year after year, but that's another discussion. But this idea of repetition, of saying and doing the same things over and over again, is really better understood as a question of memory and forgetting. It's the question of how much is it that we need to remember and how much are we allowed to forget on a deeper level. It's the question of how we define ourselves, of what I'm a part of and where I come from. But opposing all of this is a world of modernity which says none of that actually matters. It says the only story of meaning in your life is the one that you're going to write for yourself and certainly not anything that was scripted for or before you. Time was people felt part of a cosmic eternal story. Now we're algorithmic data points in a server farm somewhere in the Midwest of the United States. That's what we've come to. But this wasn't without warning. Even as far back as the 1800s, there were rabbinic masters who saw the coming clash of old world versus new world, of modernity versus tradition, of being offered a life with a past or a future, but not both, of a world brilliantly schooled in facts, but absence of truth and meaning. And one of them put the question in this way, in a story, of course. Once, he wrote, there was a man who was so forgetful that when he awoke in the morning, he didn't know what to do with the strange objects that he found in his room. Every morning saw him painstakingly trying to figure out which item of clothing, what it was for, and then he would look them up and then finally put them on correctly. And this took him hours and he was always late for work. So one day he decides to label everything in his house. The next morning he woke up and he looked around and following the label's instructions, he dressed and quickly he saw a chair from his notes and he sat on it. He saw a note with socks on it and he put them on his feet. And then as he was leaving the house, his eyes fell on the mirror right by the door. And he looked in the mirror and he froze. And bewildered, he whispered to himself, who am I? Which is to say that it is not enough to know the facts. Life wants more than data from you. But in order to have that, to find that more, you'll need to remember why even before you took your first breath in this world, what people were prepared to give their lives up for. In 1939, 
at a speech given to the Wehrmacht commanders one week before Germany's invasion of Poland, Hitler is reported to have said to them, who remembers the Armenians? He, of course, was referring to the Armenian Genocide, which began in 1915 and now is widely recognized as being the first modern genocide that is the first systematic project to destroy a minority population. And Hitler's cynical remark was meant to reassure his co-conspirators that the unspoken but implicit command of murder would not be censured, that the world would not protest a new genocide, that they didn't need to fear retribution or condemnation. In his speech, he offered them moral amnesia as an invitation to murder. On the opposite side of the scale, <clears throat> We know Jewish victims, while hiding in bunkers from the Nazis, scratched their names into walls, wrote invisible messages in urine, buried manuscripts in tin cans under ghetto streets, that one day in the hope, perhaps, their names, their words, and their lives might be remembered, that there would be no amnesia. In Yad Vashem, there's a display with the words of Gela Wachstein, who in her last testament wrote, I know I will not survive, so I ask, please, place my papers in a Jewish museum that will be built after the war is over. Not only was it unimaginable that the Jews could reach the end of their road, but it was unimaginable that those surviving Jews would not build a museum to remember. She knew forgetting begets a destruction of a second time. I read that in 2013, Rhonda Fink Whitman, who's an author and a daughter of a Holocaust survivor, traveled to Ivy League universities asking students basic questions about the Holocaust. Their answers are striking not just for their ignorance, but for the far-fetched guesses that the students offered when pressed. Asked when the Holocaust happened, the students' responses often included the year 1800. When asked how many Jews were murdered, one student guessed three million, but then revised his answer to say 300 million. But this is just one example of a phenomena that extends far beyond the Shoah, the Holocaust. The, the specifics of other moral ground zero events, the Cambodian genocide of the 1970s, the Yugoslavian ethnic cleansing of 1992, the 1994 genocide in Rwanda, and too many other massacres and genocides and conflicts have all been forgotten. And doesn't this beg the very opposite question that we get faced with on Passover and the high holidays? Why are we asked why we keep saying the same things over and over again? Instead of it being asked, how do we stop forgetting? Isn't it is, as the philosopher Gide once said, that the reason why we keep repeating old truths is because people keep forgetting them? You know, years ago, researchers discovered something that took place in movie theaters. They saw that people watching the movie mimic the emotions of the faces on the, of the actors. 
A sad scene brought sadness to the theater. Laughter brought smiles. The thing is, the Greeks knew this. They knew that during live performances, how emotion from the stage was transferred to the seats. But what surprised the researchers was that even when it wasn't live, when it was a record of things that had taken place long before, that the effect was the same. And it seems to me that as we gather year after year around our tables, opening the storybook of a people leaving Egypt, that we are both watching it and experiencing it. We read it, but we also mimic it. We tell it, but also something of it comes to us. And that something is of all the things that we tell ourselves about the story. Perhaps the most vital and integral part is found in the very moment that people are about to leave. Because people are unpacking their bags, filling their pockets with traveler's checks and trail mix. The moment the gates are open, the Torah tells us, We are told that the Israelites baked unleavened bread cakes of dough that they had taken out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, since they did not delay. When the opportunity presents, they didn't bake the matzah in Egypt. But they did it later. They left, as we read in the Haggadah, Bechipazon. They left without pause, without stopping to catch their breath. And could it be that this is the real lasting message that we are to take from Pesach? Perhaps not the story of slavery or the story of freedom alone, but the idea not to waste time, not to tarry or wait. That when the door opens to something of meaning, we don't wait until everything is neat and tidy. But like love, you are asked to jump because our days are short, because life is fragile, because transcendency is rare and those moments rarely come our way. Maybe when the text tells us that this is a holy day of Cherutenu, of our freedom, it is telling us to remember the moment that we were freed and how we didn't waste a moment. As for me, this is exactly how I choose to see it. And how it is in remembering we recall the lives of the people that we have loved because to forget is to create a second loss and to remember as well that while we live to neither squander time nor take it for granted, as the writer Paul Bowes once said, because isn't it that one of life's great deceptions, how we think that life is some never-ending story, because we don't know when we will die, we get to think of life as some inexhaustible well, and yet everything in our lives happens a certain number of times, and a very small number really, how many more times will you remember a certain afternoon of your childhood, some afternoon that is so deeply a part of your being that you can't even conceive of your life without it? Perhaps four or five more times. Perhaps not even that many. How many more times will you see the full moon rise? Perhaps 20? Perhaps not even that. And yet, it all seems so limitless. But life is not an inexhaustible well. It is short. 
and the beautiful, endearing moments that come our way are even shorter. So we are commanded to not waste them, but embrace them, to hold them tight for as long as we can. We do that with people and moments, but most importantly with memory of things and of people past, because they remind us what to make of all of this. It is why we tell these stories over and over again in the hope that we will learn what they were trying to teach us, our survival as people and as a people depend on it. Chak Sameach.